0: So growing up, I enjoyed watching game shows. There may or may not have been a few times where I convinced my mom to let me stay home sick, even though I might not have been sick. So I could watch television, and I would watch game shows like The Price is Right and Come On Down and, of course, Wheel of... Oh, yes. But there's interesting, it's, it's interesting when it comes to, to game shows because it speaks to something inherently within us And that most of us appreciate a good deal. Anybody enjoy thrift shopping? Like on a Saturday going around to the the yard sale and it's like the item's $5 and you're like, I'm going to talk them down to $3. And you're like, yes, I won. You know, and Sunday as I, growing up, I had a newspaper out and, and at the end of that time, my mom and I, we would clip coupons because my mom loved a really good deal. Now, here's what's interesting. Do you know that if you were to have purchased Amazon stock when it first came out, like a $5 share, that today it would be worth just shy of a million dollars? That's a good deal. That's a return on an investment. But here's something that we all know to be true. It's easier to spot what would have been than what might be a good deal. Last week, I got a chance to go to Boston. Uh, My family, we enjoy going to Boston and historical sites. And um, I got a chance to take my daughters to their first ever Red Sox game. And all that came with it, okay, Yankees fans, there's always one. But the girls, they, our three daughters, they wanted ball caps for the game. And so we was like, well, we'll just get one in the city. And so we went to one of the, the vendors, there's lots of options there. First one we went to was 10 bucks a cap. And so I turned to my daughters and I said, this is a good deal. And so two of them said, we're going to trust our father. And they decided to go with those ball caps. And my, my oldest daughter said, I don't know, I'm gonna hold out. Like maybe there's some other ball cap that I'm gonna find. And so the next place we went to, it was $15. Outside the park, ball caps are now $35. Inside the park, $45 for the ball caps. She did not get a cap. <laughs> but she learned an important lesson that day. It's easy to look in the rearview mirror and say, oh, that's something that I should have done. It's much harder to look into the future and say, is this a good investment? You know, as a pastor, one of the things that I get to do is sometimes I get to spend time with people that are in their final moments. And sometimes it's a gift to listen to them reflect on the the life of service and them saying, good job, well done, faithful servant, like ran the race well. But but sometimes the conversation is filled with a lot of pain and regret, all the shoulda, woulda, couldas. What if I had done things? Differently, And so for the next few weeks, we've titled this show, this series, Let's Make a Deal. And it's all game show theming because each week there's going to be an offer. And at the end of the message, we're going to invite you towards a, an opportunity. Because what we're going to see over the next few weeks is that Jesus provides a way for us to live today with less regret tomorrow. And the first offer that we have this morning is something that's so valuable to all of us. And it's this, freedom. Now, in a room this size, if we were asked to define this word, we'd probably get different definitions. But we'd all agree and value the importance of freedom. Recently, we went through a season in our lives where we experienced an absence of freedom. And suddenly, maybe we had a greater appreciation of those that came before us that gave up their own lives in the name of freedom and yet what does it mean to be free and is it even possible to experience true authentic freedom apart from jesus that's where we're going this morning would you bow your head and join me in prayer father as we open up your word and your truth would you, would you steer us, guide us, direct us, shape us? Uh, this is a hard conversation. It was then, and it is for us today. Lord, would you convict us of those things in our life that are hurting us? And would you elevate those things in your word that we can run to, that are life-giving, that lead to joy, purpose, satisfaction, truth, So, Father, as we study today, would you help my words to be clear so that you could be glorified and that we'd leave here today to challenge to follow your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 31 through 47. Now, this is a socially awkward interaction with Jesus and a crowd that's that's a mixed crowd. You'll see in verse 31 it says to the Jews who believed. But what's interesting that as you read through the conversation and as the conversation unfolds, it doesn't sound like Jesus is having a conversation with people that are on board with him. The conversation sounds like people are, that are in opposition to him. And the reason for that is if you zoom out and you read all of chapter 8 this week, and I hope you do, you would see that this is a mixed crowd and that what happens is that as Jesus is teaching the crowd, people come to faith. People change their allegiance and they say, I'm with him. I'm going to follow him. And so as he's unpacking this, it's an interesting tension because he's trying to address new believers with objections and questions and skepticism while also addressing those that are not of faith yet. And that's why here at Eastern Hills we want to have a similar approach. We want to teach to equip those that follow Jesus while also addressing the questions of those that don't know him yet. Because this is how Jesus approached his ministry, and that's what we're going to see this morning. He says to the Jews who had believed him, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And this is a familiar verse if you've been in church for a while. Maybe you've memorized this verse before. And it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of tension if we just leave it at this. But let me set the scene for you. Imagine with me, if you can, after church, you go into the lobby. And someone says to you, I've been watching your life. I've been watching how you choose to spend your time. I've been watching how you choose to love your family. I've been watching how you choose to use your finances and the things that God has provided to you. I've been watching how you handled that conversation. I see your schedule. I see all of that. And what I've concluded is that your whole life is structured like a slave. And you have no clue how to get out from underneath the forces that are guiding you and leading you to things that are destructible. I mean, at the end of that conversation, you're not going like a bro hug. Like, thanks so much for sharing that with me today. Your response is probably to be defensive. Like, there's probably like a fire stirring within you. And so instantly, his audience is insulted. And here's what happens next. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that? We shall be set Free. Like, you don't know me. You don't know my story. Instantly defensive. And when we're defensive, here's what happens. Maybe this isn't true of you, but it's true of me. Sometimes it's like a verbal vomit of the heart. Like, those are the things that come out first. Like, oh, I wish I could take that one back. And that's what's happening here. Because there's some historic irony here. And you know this. If you grew up in Sunday school, where were Abraham's descendants once slaves? In what country? Egypt! Egypt! And here they're saying, never happened. It's like a Patriots fan saying, the Patriots never cheated. (laughs) Hey, hey, I'm a Pats fan, I can do that. (laughs) Never happened. How can you say that? We shall be set free. But that's not the only irony here. As these words came out of their mouth, they're under Roman occupation. They're not even free as they make this statement. But if we're honest, there's a common vulnerability that we all share with this moment. And it's this combination of cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias. And all that means is that our gravitational pull is to elevate things that we want to be true over things that are actually true. This is a pattern. If you're honest, you see this in your own life. These are things I want to be true, even though I know that they are not true. For example, who can spot what this item is here in my hands? Cake? It's cake. It's chocolate cake, right? But it's not just any chocolate cake. This chocolate cake is from where? Wegman's. Oh, my goodness, coming here four years ago, this was this, like, have you been to Eggman's? And then I had the chocolate cake, and I'm like, wow, okay, I get it now. It's really good. And yet I know that if I simply say to myself, well, I just believe that if I eat more cake, I will get that six-pack I long for. And I can believe it, and I can consume as much cake as I want, and I can say that it's true, but nothing's going to happen. Even though I want it to be true, it's not really true. And I bet you there's probably things in your life that are a little bit more serious than this that are coming to the surface right now. But because we think it's okay to have fun in church, uh, we're going to give this cake away. In fact, I strategically placed a yellow sticky note in the audience today for that lucky person to win this cake prize. And David, you, you are the closest one, so come on down. You get the chocolate cake. All right, everybody, give it up for David. You're welcome. Now, the great thing is when I showed up to Wegmans at 6 a.m. and I had two chocolate cakes, people looked at me like, this guy might have a problem. (laughs) But this is a reality for us, and it was a reality for them. We go back to this tense-filled moment, and what's interesting is that if we're on the other side of someone's defensiveness, and I've done this before, maybe you've done this before, you throw gasoline on the fire. The wrong words come out and you make things worse, but what Jesus models here is how the gospel applies to any and every conversation. He models truth and grace. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's the truth. But here's the grace. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Simply put, He's saying that there's a standard that God has established. There's some things that we ought to do in our life, and we know that we ought to do those things, and yet we choose not to do those very things. What he's saying is that we are entangled in behaviors, we are entangled in beliefs, we are entangled in in actions and activity in our life that is contrary to God's perfect design. And yet I know, and I agree with Jesus in saying that everyone who sins is a slave to sin, and yet... There are people here today that might disagree. And even if you agree with Jesus, there's probably people in your life that you do life with that would disagree with this. And so if I was having a conversation with someone and say, I'm not sure I'm in the same camp as Jesus, here's a question that I would love to ask over a cup of coffee. Would you agree that anytime we struggle to start or stop a habit, it's a reminder that we are not our own masters? Because if we take Jesus away from the conversation and we just simply acknowledge there are things in our life that we know what's best for us. Like this is the most loving thing to do and yet I choose not to do that. And if you don't want to call that slavery to sin, that's fine. But you can't call it freedom. So Jesus continues. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. Now I was, a, I was a fall baby. And if you're a fall baby, your parents have an interesting choice to make. So I was born in November. And so the choice that parents have to make is, are we going to keep our child back, and then they'll be one of the older kids in the class, or are we going to put them in early and they'll be one of the youngest kids in the class? And so my mom looked at me and said, enough already, you're going to school. And so for me, I was constantly one of the youngest kids in my class, which made that problematic when it came to sports and physical maturity and all the thing that comes with that, but it was also problematic when it came time to drive, because I was one of the last ones to get my license, which meant I was the can I get a ride guy, and there were times where I would say, hey, can I get a ride, and to be on the other side of I'm sorry, there's no more seats in the car, like it's full have you ever been on the other side of someone saying that there's no room for you in their life it's not a good feeling and yet sometimes we structure our life in such a way where we say to Jesus I'm sorry but I have no room for you and sometimes it's because we're doing a lot of great things for him we're doing a lot of things being busy for Jesus and we're not being present with Jesus. And I'm a pastor and I struggle with that. Like, it's, it's my job, it's my calling to do that. And yet I'm guilty of putting so many things, good things, and getting in the way of the ultimate thing, which is to be with him. Even on a day like this, like I love that our church has great opportunities for you to serve. And to be in community and to teach under teachers and to learn and to grow. And in the lobby today after service, you're going to get to experience that. And that's awesome. Praise God for that. And yet, for some people here today, your next step might not be to put more on your plate. It might be to take a step back and say, have I made time for his word in my life? Have I made time to just sit in solitude? And to hear from the word of God, to interact with the spirit of God, and to remind, him, remind ourselves of his love and his grace and his mercy. And then there are some of you where you might say, I just need help with figuring out how to spend time with God and his word. And that's why we have classes in group, and that might be your next step. But the caution is, let's not get so busy doing things for Jesus. That we forget to make time to be with him. Jesus continues, I'm telling you what I've seen in the father's presence and you are doing what you have heard from your father and this is where it's like confusing because Jesus is talking to different people in the room and this comes across as like a heckle from the crowd, Abraham's our father because they don't want to listen to what he has to say. He says, if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. If you had a relationship with my heavenly father, this would look differently. This conversation would feel differently. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth and I'd heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. See, honest relationships require hard conversations. And so Jesus, yes, is compassionate, and he is loving. But he knows the consequence of allowing someone to continue to believe a lie is far more painful. So they feel threatened. They feel attacked. We're not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. Jesus says, I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. Ouch. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. See, what Jesus is leading them to do is something that's difficult for every person here in this room to do, including myself. What Jesus is asking them to do is in humility admit that they are wrong. And yet the only way to increase commitment to truth is to decrease commitment to lies. It's true that our heavenly father loves us more than we can comprehend. Like the depth of his love, the height of his love, the width of his love, we'll never fully comprehend that and that is true about him. But it's also true that our heavenly father resists the proud while also giving grace to the humble jesus continues can any of you prove me guilty of sin if i'm telling the truth why don't you believe me whoever belongs to god hears what god says the reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to god what i appreciate about the way that jesus engaged was that he was always open to a conversation around the reason for someone saying no to him. Like if there's obstacles in your life, like questions that you need answered before you say yes to Jesus, Jesus says, come and investigate me. Bring your questions, let's talk through that, let's answer those questions. But he doesn't just say investigate me, he also says evaluate yourselves. And so this is the part where we all get to play along. And I'm gonna invite you, to be honest for a second, and in a moment moment of vulnerability, I'd like by a show of hands for you to respond. How many of us have known what we ought to do and chose not to do it? Sinners, shame, shame on you. How many of us have known what we ought not to do and chose to do it anyways? you are just horrible people. Can you look around the room? You do a church with these people. Pray for them. It's just terrible. The fact is, is that if the Lord was present right now, and he said I'm going to tell you about Rob's life and decisions that he's made along the way, there would be real moments where I'd be on the floor in shame. Things that I'm not proud of things that I would want to take back, things that I would want to do differently. There are plenty of moments in my life where I knew, clearly, this is what I need to do, what I I ought to do. And yet, I chose not to do it. And I'm sure that's been your experience too. But here's what's interesting. It's not even our own lives. It's the lives of other people. You see, the people that we do life with are also entangled in beliefs, behaviors, and attitudes that lead to harm in our own lives. And so again, if you're not gonna call that slavery to sin, you certainly can't call that freedom. So what's the good news? Jesus has to offer freedom. Jesus offers us freedom. And the the biblical definition of freedom is this combination of knowing what we ought to do what he has communicated clearly in his word and through his people, and having the capacity to live out what we ought to do. But we're not just robots, that there's something within us that says, this is what's best to do, and that I find joy and satisfaction in living out God's commands and desires for my life. But here's what's true. There are people that you know and you love and that you care about that would say the best way to experience freedom is to remove what we ought to do. Like, don't let anybody tell you what you should do or shouldn't do. You be your own boss. You be your own authority. If you want to be most free, then let's remove what we ought to do. And everybody can be their own god. And I've lived my life this way. And you know what I found? Not freedom, but slavery to my deepest desires. That's an irreligious approach but a religious approach would say this. It doesn't matter what you want to do. It's not about what you want. It's about what God wants. Just do what he says to do, and you have the capacity to do it. The problem with this approach is that we've all recognized that we're terrible people and that we're not able to do what we ought to do. And so what we're left is a version of faith that just feels like a bunch of rules, and it doesn't feel all that freeing at all. So what's the solution? Well, Paul told the Roman church some really good news. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Through the cross, Jesus perfectly meets the requirements of what we ought to do to be in a relationship with him. And when we receive his grace, we receive his mercy, the spirit of God dwells within us and not only gives us the ability to do what we ought to do, but that we have joy doing it. That's the freedom that God has to offer. And it's permanent. Nobody can take that away from you. So here's how this looks in our life. And another letter, Paul said, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be what? What's this word here? Free. But do not use your what? Freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, do this, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. The reason why Paul said this, It's because this is how Jesus came. This is how Jesus chose to serve. This is what encompassed his ministry, serving one another humbly in love. So the offer is freedom. So let's make a deal. Will you trade in autonomy for allegiance to Jesus? Will you trade in what's natural, which is to be self governing, to be your own boss? For allegiance to Jesus, to submit to his kingship, his will, his desires, to adopt kingdom values, will you make that transition? You know, it's it's interesting. We're living during a time where it seems like there's more entrepreneurs than there ever has been. Influencers. This this gravitational pull to say, I, I don't want to go work for someone else, I want to be my own boss. And there's nothing wrong with that. We love our entrepreneurs. Like, praise God for you. Like, you do great things in the community. That's not what I'm getting at. For many people, the belief is, is if I'm my own boss, then I will be most free. And then there are those that within organizations and and businesses have believed that the higher up that I go, the more freedom I'll have with the choices that I make. And yet those that have sat in positions of leadership would tell you that it always doesn't always feel so freeing. If we embrace a gospel mindset, if we embrace what Jesus modeled, if we embrace what the Apostle Paul said, to serve one another humbly in love, it doesn't matter what type of relationship you're in. You may or may not have authority in that relationship but you will always, always, always have influence. You may or may not have authority in a relationship, but you always, always, always have the opportunity to influence, to embrace the mindset where I'm going to serve others humbly in love. When we embrace this mindset, Marriages change. When we embrace this mindset, homes change. When we embrace this mindset, churches change. When we embrace this mindset, communities change. This mindset has the potential to not only change your life, but to change the world around us. To say, I'm taking this freedom, and I'm choosing to invest it to serve other people humbly in love.